You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Greetings and welcome to Domecast, the News and Observer Politics Podcast. I'm Don Vaughn here with Will Doran, Colin Campbell, and Daniel Battaglia. And this week we're talking about how election season, campaign season has ramped up in a different way. There's a different tone this week where they're they're really just doing everything they can to pull on different voter groups and issues and it just like all came out starting Monday with uh, House Speaker Moore, I think it was Monday, um, uh, calling a press conference, trying to get attention to uh, something that uh, House Democrats or candidates had signed. And Danielle did a fact check on that. We've got things with like all the, we're all unaffiliated voters. So we're that target audience for mailers. And it's been really interesting to see uh, the different campaign tactics, both at the state level and federal level for what, uh, what they think. Um, that will sway sway voters. We've got uh, new Biden ads this week that came out. There are new Trump ads that came out this week in, in North Carolina. The Biden ads um, was filmed in Durham. Anyway, we've got a lot to talk about. So, so let's get started. What do you guys think just kind of the general, I mean, I feel like election season usually lasts years now, but all of a sudden, like, here we are. Is it that people are actually mailing their ballots in or deciding when to early vote or wait for the excitement of election day? What do you guys think? Well, we've seen that uh, we actually just passed the 100,000 mark in terms of people who have already voted. So, you know, here we are still, what is it now, six weeks away from the election um, and already 100,000 people have sent in their ballots. Um, And so, I mean, yeah, there's clearly an appetite this year for mail-in voting. That, that's not going to be a surprise to anybody. The, the big question is going to be whether or not people continue getting those ballots in early and before Election Day, which means that they'll be counted by Election Day and included in the voting totals that we see on Election Night when everything else gets announced, or if people are going to procrastinate, wait till the last minute and, you know, maybe not have their ballots counted until a couple days after the election. And if there's a, you know, a large number of voters who do procrastinate like that, um, which you're allowed to do, you know, there's nothing illegal about procrastinating, wait until the last minute. Um, I'm sure lots of us are guilty of uh, waiting up until the deadline to do things. Um, but, you know, if you've got a, a lot of them wait until the last minute to get their votes in, and then, you know, we've got some really close races here, you could, you know, not see, uh, you know, maybe the, the final results in some races until, you know, several days beyond election night, which, you know, is just going to obviously add to, a lot of the the ramped up rhetoric, you know, that we've seen around, uh, you know, claims of fraud that are basically unsubstantiated and all, all sorts of chaos going on in the election. So, uh, you know, I really wonder how many of the uh, people who are early voting now are doing it not so much because they feel uncomfortable about going to the polls and voting the way they normally would, but just that they're so eager for this election. I mean, just see a lot of people on Twitter who are very much big politicos are like, I got my ballot on day one that it was available and I immediately sent it in. I'm so excited about this election. So I think I almost wonder if you'll see like the numbers sort of trend downward for a while before the procrastinators come in uh, because the initial wave was just everyone who is like almost voting for therapy of like this year really sucks. I'm going to vote now and feel good about it. I think it really is like who you've I mean, if the election was decided you know, months ago, like people that are like, yes, I definitely want Trump another term or no, I absolutely don't want Trump. And they're probably the most eager to get their vote in. 
um, and just want it done. But, you know, I hope that they will. Our voter guide is out now. I hope that they've, you know, looked at all the down ballot because, as everyone will tell you, um, you know, the down ballot is what actually affects your daily life much more uh, than who lives in the White House. So um, I think sometimes what Will was saying about when people uh, decide and, and look things up, we can tell when um, when people are reading our stories like like per day. And it's guaranteed that a lot of people are just standing in line waiting to vote. And then they're like, who is this again? You know, trying to figure figure out races. So that's what we're for with our voter guide and candidate questionnaires um, with all those things. But there, I guess there are those people that just at the last minute will decide something or that will look at the mailers and think like, oh, yeah, I don't like this national politician and you're tying, you know, who I was thinking about voting for to them. So maybe I'll pick someone else, or at least that's what they're hoping for, because they're spending all this money, right? I mean, we're talking, how much money you guys think we're talking? It's massive on the mailers and, and then ads themselves. Oh, yeah. But I mean, by the election, the end of the election here, it'll be in the hundreds of millions of dollars that got spent on TV ads and mailers and all that. It's crazy amounts of money. I think you also have those voters that are burned from former elections. Like I know some people who have said they voted early and then a politician said something that was so like against their morals or their beliefs or whatever drives them to vote. And and they regretted voting for that person. So I know a few people who will not vote until election day to make sure something doesn't come out about a candidate that will make them think otherwise. That's why we have that phrase, October surprise, right? But it's also, people may not know this about reporters, is that we'll, we'll try not to have any too close surprises and get out any investigations and everything else that we can um, ahead of time so it, it, it isn't some too close throw, throw a grenade out there type of, uh, type of thing. So we're trying to, on, on our side, you know, we're at September and we're already, like I was saying before, plugging our voter guides already out. Um, politics reporter Lucille Sherman is, is, is recording these bonus episodes of Domecast about the legislative races and, and those have already come out. And, um, she and I talked about the governor's race and the most recent one. And, and so we actually get started on this pretty early, but I, yeah, I mean, this, they're, People make those last minute decisions on on something, especially if it's somebody that maybe they haven't followed their political career the last years, if they're the incumbent. We we're talking earlier, this comes out with Democrats and Republicans and the battle with Cooper and, and Forrest and the legislature and, and reopening um, all around coronavirus. And uh, I'd done a story a couple months ago with uh, NC Central University professor Jarvis Hall who said that, you know, it's really just the coronavirus handling is a lot of it, especially in the governor's race on whether or not you think Roy Cooper has has done what you want. Uh, and so you want to keep him around or you completely disagree. And, and Dan Forrest is the way to go. And of course, Forrest got extra attention this week from the press conference he had with the other Republicans were, were forced saying, you know, multiple times when he was on the stage that he was only speaking for himself, that he um, he questions the science on on mass, um, questions the, the CDC guidelines on that. Um, and then Cooper, you know, people say it's a political reason he did this. And, you know, they are politicians um, offered elementary schools, uh, the um, the local school districts to have in person daily the just the day after Republicans called for it. What do you what do you guys think about that and the timing of that? 
I was kind of surprised. I would have thought Cooper would have at least like waited a week so that the Republicans could crow and gloat about how their press conference caused him to do it. I'm pretty sure that's not what caused him to do it. And maybe they had a sort of advance notice that that was coming down the pipeline. So perhaps that influenced the decision to call a press conference, but uh, certainly gives the you know impression that one may have been connected to the other, even if that's not the case. Um, and that sort of boosts things for Republicans. Although I have to say, I think the messaging of the press conference that you covered this week, Don, uh, featured, it was at the legislative building, which I thought was interesting because that's, you know, a government building, but it featured Senate Leader Phil Berger, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, who's running for governor, and Catherine Truitt, who has no official position right now, but is the Republican candidate for superintendent of public instruction. And, you know, I think they were on solid ground with the messaging about schools because there's certainly a a large number of parents who want their kids back in schools and aren't happy with the virtual instruction that a lot of the school districts are providing. Uh, But by Forrest going off about masks and being opposed to mask requirements in schools, mask requirements in general, that sort of took over the narrative and took put it on much more of a partisan ground to the point that you saw Roy Cooper blast out Dan Forrest's quote about mask and sort of a internet meme. And then Forrest, who I guess assumes most of his supporters are against mask mandates, um, puts out the exact same thing, like copy pasted off of Cooper's thing. So, I mean, it's just a sign of political polarization that people are so ingrained in their views on this that like a Dan Forrest quote is going to energize Cooper supporters to say, oh, Dan Forrest is awful. He can't be governor. And the exact same quote, Dan Forrest at least thinks his supporters will look at that and say, this is the guy we need for governor. Yeah, I thought that was really funny. And also, you can't take someone's creative work. You know, like that's, you know, anyway, I just wanted to say that somebody who ever business we call that plagiarism, but, you know. (laughs) Well, I mean, whoever made it is uh, is happy to see that it's getting a, a lot of attention. So, yeah, and and I think, I mean, I don't who knows if Forrest was was told to say this or not, uh, or asked to say this, but he said multiple times during that press conference, "I'm just speaking for myself, not for the people on stage with me." Many of whom had on masks, right? Yeah, Berger did until he took it off. Uh, Senator Ballard was there. There are other senators. Some some didn't. Um, but as you know, this last legislative session, mask wearing was was much more widespread, I think, as it is overall in the in the state. Studies have shown um, multiple ways that 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 does help slow the the spread of it. And and Cooper's plug has been that it that it's for the economy. And then Republicans have said, well, you know, obviously having businesses open. Um, are better for the economy too. It's not necessarily either or. It can be both and, um, but it depends on on who you're asking what their party affiliation is, right? I'm actually confused where they stand at this point because, I mean, Republicans very strongly came out against mask wearing and have kind of reverted that. And now I'm confused because it seems to be candidate to candidate where they fall. Yeah, I think it's, well, I noticed a lot of... Um, Republican women wore masks when when men weren't as much the earlier summer, um, and then the that I saw more men when when they came back. But I did. There was somebody. It wasn't a press conference I covered. I think y'all were there. It was right before the short session. The very very short session started, and someone asked, "Oh, you guys are wearing masks now. Is this something we're going to see?" And and I think the whoever answered just sort of deflected. Um, to say something about we're focused on the economy or, you know, or whatever. But um, it was, you know, much more widespread, I think. And I don't know why this phrase, say it, don't spray it, hasn't come back up like it should. But I felt that there was less chance of that the last time we were there um, being around everybody. 
Yeah, I think in general what we're seeing sort of across races and across issues is we're, as we get closer to the election, it's definitely the politics of fear. Um, I think the, the Democrats are pushing the you know Republicans in charge. The coronavirus is going to get worse because there's not going to be these sort of restrictions. Um, and you saw that with an ad from the Cooper campaign uh, that was basically the gist of it was, you know, Dan Forrest, his governor, would get you sick with all of his maskless rallies. And then he's opposed to Medicaid expansion, so he's not going to give you any treatment. So basically, elect Dan Forrest and you're going to die, get sick and die, was sort of the, the undertone of his ad. And then on the flip side of that, I mean, you have, you know, the worries from Republicans about keep the Democrats in charge and the economy is, you know, going to go to hell because of all these uh, restrictions. But then the the other sort of fear-based politics, and Danielle covered that this week, was the Republican rhetoric from House Speaker Tim Moore and a lot of the uh, Republican House candidates about uh, House Democrats um, signing on to a pledge that was um, from a group that was also pushing sort of reallocation of funds or defund the police, depending on how you term it. Essentially, the gist of his message was you reelect these Democrats or elect these other Democrats, they're going to defund the police and you're not going to have protection and all of the looting and violence or whatever from protests is going to hit your town and you're all going to die. Uh, so basically, that's the, the rhetoric on all both sides comes down to you're all going to die, which is really a very inspiring campaign message that gets me excited about voting. Yeah, there's another way, you know, a tactic about like, what are good things that you can do instead of hear all the terrible things, you know, like this other person, and your neighborhood's going to be burned down, or everybody's going to get sick and die, or here are the things that I'm going to do to make life better. But again, that's like the whole craziness of campaign season why we're talking about it this week, because it's now getting to that point of using the that coded phrase of law and order, you know, and what you actually mean by that. And so they're they're pulling out everything they have because this is crunch time and you just throw everything out there, you know, as best you can and 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 see what sticks. And some of it is this, these broader things and these issues and some are, are more specific groups of voters. I worked this past weekend and had written about these new Biden ads that were filmed in the Sturm Barbershop. And they anyone that's in, involved in politics uh, here will recognize some of the faces. Um, Greer Webb, who's a UNC student um, who's been active since he was in, in high school in, in, uh, in the community, and, and Zach Hawkins, the state representative from Durham. Of course, it was filmed in Durham. He's in it. Um, and some attorneys and, and others. Um, so that was part of this overall uh, Biden-Harris campaign um, ad tactic to get black voters specifically. Um, but the people that are in it are obviously already pretty clued into politics, if not politicians themselves. And then and then Trump also has um, new North Carolina ads this week. Um, I don't believe they were filmed here, though, but I think we'll see way more. I mean, if you guys watch local news, I record the nightly news every night. And then, I mean, every commercial in between is just like, Cal Cunningham, Tom Tillis, and you know, and this, and then the Biden Trump stuff. Yeah, and I wonder how much of this is just going to be people are going to think of the slogans and the messaging. I mean, the the Tim Moore ad stuck out because you really had to kind of drill down into the claim there to understand exactly what was going on and what he was referring to. So, I mean, Danielle had to had a, had a very lengthy fact check trying to sort out that claim and and what was actually being said by the Democrats that they were seizing on and taking into a this means defund the police standpoint. I would like to interject that nobody told us they would die because of that. <laughs> um, it was implied. <laughs> I know how much hate I got, so I'm saving you from yourself. But yeah. I think safety, maybe safety and health, right? Maybe that's more than, than Collins. Like, <laughs> you're all going to die. 
I'm just trying to drill down to the core emotions of these ads. You know, just trying to save you from the uh, backlash that I faced this week. That was interesting. That was interesting to take that all apart because you had one side saying we absolutely didn't sign this. It's not even on the same website. The other side, if you really drill down into it, it's two different websites. Both of them say powered by Future Now Fund. I keep trying to call them Freedom Now. I don't know why, but Future Now Fund. Um, and it takes the, so it's like a pledge with, I want to say seven subsections. And then if you click to the other site, the seven subsections are there with all the different policies. And the pledge basically said, we're signing on to try to improve these areas. So it's all a little, I don't, you know, somebody wrapped it up pretty good to me and said, like, my article didn't take a side and he's mad because he's partisan. And that's kind of, I think, where it all lands is, like, depending on whose side you're on, you're going to see it a different way. And I'm not sure you can actually take a side on this because they signed it. Did they know it was in there? I don't know. I think it's interesting to see the legislative races ramp up. It almost feels like just within the last week. I mean, I've covered, this will be my third um, legislative campaign cycle I've covered. And I think the first, this is the first time I'm seeing a lot of uh, public press conferences and events by Tim Moore and Phil Berger around very, you know, central to the campaign partisan issues. Um, and I don't know if they've seen polling that suggests that, you know, their majorities are in some kind of danger, uh, which certainly, you know, if it's a good year for Democrats, I think is probably the case, or if they're just trying to break through the noise of all of the other campaigns uh, and get people to even think for a second about, you know, who they're going to vote for for legislature. But it's been interesting to see both of them come out outside of session. And I think Moore had the press conference in Raleigh, then he had another one in Greenville. Berger had the press conference on schools. And usually they don't say a whole lot publicly, or at least not in, you know, a big press conference situation outside of session. And they definitely are now. Well, it's interesting because when I was covering politics, I don't know how long ago it was, but I was taught that the people who are attacking are usually on the bottom. So it's interesting to see them going after people right now and see, does that mean they're worried about their position in the election or are they trying to get their point across? It's interesting to see where that's going to play out. I think with Berger, I mean, we already know what, what Berger thinks and what he answered my questions and others at the press conference were, um, you know, his policy and what and what like we know this already. He makes himself available um, to the press, you know, during session and, and whenever. And, and so I don't think it was him telling us anything that we are, or the public uh, didn't know. But Forrest hadn't come up there and said that before, you know, and Truett and then where they had the guests with um, parents with it. So I think it was a way to push for reopening schools in a, in a way that they couldn't with um, they didn't with bills because those were just vetoed. And, you know, so that wasn't going to happen. So it was a way to will, draw attention. Yeah. I'll interject in that, though, and say Berger is really good about speaking to the media here in Raleigh, but in his hometown, not so much. He is notorious for not returning calls to the news and record. Um, I think we had a little bit better luck with him when we worked at Rockingham now, but I know he does not speak with the news and record pretty standard. I will not say that that I don't know if that's still true, but as of when I left. So I don't know that he actually reaches his voting pool 
in the Greensboro, Guilford area, as well as he does out here in Raleigh. Right. I think the same goes for more, but they don't actually have to worry about their own seats. I mean, they're pretty much assured of re-election based on how their districts are drawn. But what they have to worry about is if other Republicans in vulnerable districts lose and they lose their majority, then suddenly, you know, Tim Moore and Phil Berger are like backbenchers from a rural area and have zero power at all. Yeah, that's very true. And I know one of the reasons they love him in Rockingham County is because they have that power through him. So that's one reason he could not speak to his constituents as much as possible and still get reelected. That's true. And I think it would be fair for whatever. Um, I'm not sure what the the community papers are in, in Burr's district or, or Moore's district, but I would I would think that they would um, be able to have access if they did want to come to the legislative building and talk to them there. Um, but hopefully I would think that they would visit uh, their small papers. My first newspaper job was the News Messenger in Christiansburg, Virginia, which is next to Virginia Tech, where I went to school. And we had a member of Congress, it was Rick Boucher at the time, um, who would come and do a sort of annual talk with the the local newspapers. And we were 3,000 circulation. I mean, it's it's really small. And so you know, little little papers or whatever the, you know, local TV, nearest TV affiliate or a radio station or website or whatever. It seems like it would be good for uh, for elected officials to to see their community that way and the people that are there all the time, not just in, in Raleigh or in D.C., right? And just to jump back in on uh, legislative races, um, you know, kind of I think back into the presidential election, obviously politics now seems like it is much more driven from the national level, but we are still a swing state here and we do still have some crossover voters. You know, you've got conservative Democrats who will vote, you know, for the Democratic candidate, maybe like for their local sheriff or for their, you know, state legislator, but they're going to vote for President Trump. But then you also have, you know, the never Trump Republicans who are going to vote Republican, you know, for their sheriff or for their legislator, but might vote for, you know, Joe Biden for the president. But in general, what we've seen for the legislature and this kind of goes to a point that uh, I think Colin was making earlier, was that Republicans probably will retain, you know, hold of the legislature in these elections if the presidential election here is tied. You know, if it's basically a 50-50 split between Biden and Trump, Republicans have a pretty good shot at holding on to the legislature. And even if Biden has kind of a narrow win here, say he wins by maybe two percentage points, something like that, then, uh, you know, a lot of you know, political prognosticators think, even if Trump loses here, but by a narrow margin, that Republicans would still hold on to control of the legislature. But if you see Biden winning by, you know, maybe like five, six, seven points here, then that's when, uh, you know, Republicans, you know, hopes of keeping control of the legislature would be in danger. So I don't know if the fact that we're seeing all of these extra appearances by some of the state legislative leaders means that, you know, they are worried about that kind of a Biden victory. I think the polling that we've seen so far has Biden up slightly in North Carolina, but I mean, you know, all the polls I've seen have pretty much been within the margin of error. We really seem like we're still a toss up. Um, Yeah. I do think some of this rhetoric seems to be aimed at reaching the ticket splitters, people who have already, maybe have already decided they're going to vote for Joe Biden because they don't like Trump for various reasons and see Biden as sort of a, a moderate alternative. Um, So I think the goal is then to try to paint uh, Democrats at the local level as to the left of Biden. So by bringing up defund the police, which really polls poorly in North Carolina, um, that's to try to sort of give these people a sense that, oh, hey, you might be voting for Biden for president because you don't like Trump, but consider voting against your um, local legislator who's a Democrat because they're 
more to the left than that. They want to keep schools closed. They want to defund the police, allegedly. And, and you've seen some of that. I saw an ad for Perrin Jones, who's a fairly new representative from the Greenville area um, in the state house. Um, and his ad features a woman saying, I'm a Democrat, but I support Perrin Jones. So clearly in a, in a swing district like his, that's the messaging they think they need. I do think like if, if Democrats do better at the top of the ballot, then Republicans will do better down ballot because just that whole if somebody is like, well, I, th- I you know, they like Cooper enough. And so they'll keep him um, because they don't like force for whatever reason. Um, but they're generally a Republican or if they're an independent that leans right, and they'll be like, well, I do want the legislature here for checks and balances, which is great about having, you know, multiple branches of government so they can hold each other accountable too. And, and maybe people want that or they're just fed up with all of it. And it's just straight ticket. I think there's always a straight ticket voters, you know, or people that'll blame the whole Republican Party uh, for whatever they don't like about Trump or they're, you know, double down in the reverse or something. But I, I really don't know. Like, I, you know, people have asked me, I'm sure they ask y'all and like, you know, what do you think is going to happen? I was like, I have I have no idea because you actually you can do all the polling you want. You still don't know what what people are going to do once they're filling out their ballot. Yeah, I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen at this point. I think it is uh, a complete mystery. All right. Well, I think enough about the uh, various attack ads. We've uh, skewered them as much as we possibly can. Uh, Let's take a break and we'll be back with Headliner of the Week. All right. Time for Headliner of the Week to see what our... um, Winners were for last week. Uh, last week's uh, picks for headliner were the U.S. Census, which was uh, dealing with some some major challenges. Uh, the Trump family visits to North Carolina, which you've been seeing a lot of. Uh, the Taco Trail in Washington, North Carolina, and the Granville County Wilt. And apparently, there's a lot of love for obscure uh, historical moments in tobacco farming because Granville County Wilt was our winner, so Don wins this week. It's interesting, and everyone can learn about uh, the town of Wendell. Colin will learn more about it if you saw his tweet where he says that he's moving there. Yeah, moving close to downtown, so I'll, I'll be a neighbor of the giant uh, tobacco worm mural that uh, occupies a side of a building there and is known apparently as the world's largest tobacco worm mural. Um, I don't know how much competition there is for size of your local tobacco worm mural, but it's something you're going to have it. <laughs> All right, so headliner of the week. All right. Colin, you got one you want out of the gate. Otherwise, I've, I've got one in line. Why don't you go? Because I still think of one. Okay, mine is not obscure. It's one I brought up in a previous week and then was like, wait, no, it's rules chair. I need to switch that out for K-Dub. Um, so I'm going to go back, uh, especially with the news this week that elementary schools can can reopen for daily in person if the school districts decide that's what they want to do starting October 5th. Uh, so what I mentioned before is is really just the the IT factor of those who work in IT departments for uh, the school systems, the teachers themselves, the parents, the kids that are figuring out all of this. And of course, it's much well in theory much easier for adults. Uh, to have dealt with, you know, virtual, remote, everything, um, but it's a, a struggle for um, education. So, so my headliner of the week is IT support in education, and really just the the hard work and frustration that that everyone has done at, at all levels to to pull it off. All right, Danielle, what you got? So I'm going to go with a cheesier, happier thing because I need some cheesy happiness in my life, but it's very North Carolina centric and has been in the news all week. And if you haven't seen the video, you need to go watch Robbie Anderson learning who uh, Panthers mascot Sir Purr is. I thought it was made up at first and that somebody had just dubbed words over 
his video, but then I actually clicked on it and listened and the entire conversation of him trying to figure out who the dancing bear was. You guys can't see my air quotes, but I had air quotes because it's Panther. Um, it was just hilarious. And you need to go see him learn about Surper. All right. Well, I wonder how you can be hired for millions of dollars to play for an organization named the Panthers and then see some sort of like four-legged animal costume and not think, huh, that's probably a panther. <laughs> have you not seen baseball mascots? Like, they don't have anything to do with the team. So I'm going to give them a break. I, I do appreciate him calling out the Bears as a, a Lenore Ryan alumni who uh, is, you know, home of the Bears and Joe and Josie Bear, who, by the way, was a real bear on campus until he bit the mayor in a parade and they had to put him down. So now we actually use people in costumes. Well, it's probably good that uh, Carolina Panthers do not have a live panther as their mascot. <laughs> okay, um, my headliner, um, kind of similar to Don's, um, but elementary school parents. Um, I think a lot of them got a huge win this week uh, by being able to uh, shuttle their little kiddos back off to school. You know, so many people have been trying really hard to juggle homeschooling and work and just all of the craziness of coronavirus. You know, there's... Plenty of evidence that especially young kids do really benefit from in-person education. You know, socialization is just as important as, you know, the actual curricula in the classrooms, um, especially for the younger grades. So I think they are definitely the big winners this week, um, no matter whether you credit uh, Governor Cooper for making that decision or Republican lawmakers for forcing Governor Cooper to make that decision. You know, regardless of where you fall along those lines, I think everyone can agree that uh, elementary school parents definitely came out on top. I think the kids will enjoy seeing each other again. All right, Colin. All right. So I'm sort of in keeping with our theme of ads. I'm going to go for uh, what could also be my candidate for corniest ad of the week. Um, and that honor goes to uh, Phil Berger Jr., the Court of Appeals judge, son of uh, Senate leader Phil Berger, uh, who's running for Supreme Court. His uh, campaign uh, posted I'm not even sure I could call it an ad because it wasn't really the finished product. It was like 26 minutes worth of raw footage that could eventually become an ad full of like outtakes and such. But the premise of his ad was perhaps the corniest I've seen this season. And it's uh, a guy going to the counter of a burger restaurant and attempting to order a Phil Burger Jr. Uh, and then after confusing the woman behind the counter, he explains that Phil Berger Jr. is a law and order judge who's running for Supreme Court. So I don't know if he's actually planning to run this as a real ad that's going to appear on TV or if this was just something that ended up on the cutting room floor and somehow found its way to Twitter and uh, video sharing platform. Uh, but for being uh, corny as could possibly be, uh, Phil Berger, B-U-R-G-E-R Jr. is my pick this week. <laughs> All right. Well, Thanks, everyone, for listening again. Uh, I'm Don Vaughn for Will Doran, Colin Campbell, and Danielle Battaglio. We'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 